Hey, this is Brett, and we are excited to let you know that today's show is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Channel, one of our favorite places to get your nature fix, where you can explore the real Rockies. From award-winning documentaries to music in the mountains, this is Adventure with a Conscience. We think you're going to love it. You can check it out and subscribe at RockyMountainChannel.com. to the mountain. Hey, it's Brett Wilson here to inspire you to connect with nature for mindfulness and personal growth, and for all of its goodness, naturally. I'm so glad to have you here for another Walden Wednesday where we slow down and just spend a few precious moments of our day to truly listen to the thoughts the ideas and writings of some of the greatest thinkers and naturalists and lovers of nature the world has ever known. We're talking about writers like Emerson and Whitman, Muir and Thoreau. In today's time together, we continue our visit with adventure naturalist, wildlife photographer, and nature writer, Enos Mills, as he recounts his thrilling and exhilarating adventures as the Colorado Snow Observer in the heart of the Colorado Rockies. And I particularly love this chapter because it's chapter one, part two, he gets into some really exciting stuff that reads like an action-adventure movie or novel. Uh, things like encountering avalanches, dangerous precipices, starvation and hypothermia by falling through ice into a freezing river, and even encounters with mountain lions and, and bears. What's really interesting, though, is always a stoic. He calmly treats these occurrences as just another day in the life of a Colorado snow observer. So sit back and relax as we enjoy part two of the chapter, Colorado Snow Observer. The first chapter from Wildlife on the Rockies by Enos Mills, friend of John Muir and father of Rocky Mountain National Park. In order to give an idea of one of my briefer winter walks, I close this chapter with an account of a round-trip snowshoe journey from Estes Park to Grand Lake, the most thrilling and adventurous that has ever entertained me on the trail. One February morning, I set off alone on snowshoes to cross the range for the purpose of making some snow measurements. The nature of my work for the state required the closest observation of the character and extent of the snow in the mountains. I hoped to get to Grand Lake for the night, but I was on the east side of the range, and Grand Lake was on the west. Along the 25 miles of trail, there was only wilderness without a single house. The trail was steep and the snow very soft. Five hours were spent in gaining timberline, which was only six miles from my starting place, but 4,000 feet above it. Rising in bold grandeur above me was the summit of Long's Peak, and this, with the great hills of drifted snow, out of which here and there a dwarfed and distorted tree thrust its top, made timberline seem weird and lonely. From this point, the trail wound for six miles across bleak heights before it came down to a timber on the other side of the range. I set forward as rapidly as possible, for the northern sky looked stormy. I must not only climb up 1,500 feet, 
but must also skirt the icy edges of several precipices in order to gain the summit. My friends had warned me that the trip was a foolhardy one even on a clear, calm day, but I was fated to receive the fury of a snowstorm while on the most broken portion of the trail. The tempest came on with deadly cold and almost blinding violence. The wind came with awful surges and roared and boomed among the crags. The clouds dashed and seethed along the surface, shutting out all landmarks. I was every moment in fear of slipping or being blown over a precipice, but there was no shelter. I was on the roof of the continent, 12,500 feet above sea level, and to stop in the bitter cold meant death. It was still three miles to timber on the west slope, and I found it impossible to keep the trail. Fearing to perish if I tried to follow even the general course of the trail, I abandoned it altogether and started for the head of a gorge down which I thought it would be possible to climb to the nearest timber. Nothing definite could be seen. The clouds on the snowy surface and the light electrified air gave the eye only optical illusions. The outline of every object was topsy-turvy and dim. The large stones that I thought to step on were not there, and, when apparently passing others, I bumped into them. Several times I fell headlong by stepping out for a drift and finding a depression. In the midst of these illusions, I walked out on the snow cornice that overhung a precipice. Unable to see clearly, I had no realization of my danger until I felt the snow giving way beneath me. I had seen the precipice in summer and knew it was more than a thousand feet to the bottom. Down I tumbled, carrying a large fragment of the snow cornice with me. I could see nothing, and I was entirely helpless. Then, just as the full comprehension of the awful thing that was happening swept over me, the snow falling beneath me suddenly stopped. I plunged into it, completely burying myself. Then I too no longer moved downward. My mind gradually admitted the knowledge that my body, together with a considerable mass of the snow, had fallen upon a narrow ledge and caught there. More of the snow came tumbling after me, and it was a matter of some minutes before I succeeded in extricating myself. When I thrust my head out of the snow mass and looked about me, I was first appalled by a glance outward, which revealed the terrible height of the precipice on the face of which I was hanging. Then I was relieved by a glance upward, which showed me that I was only some twenty feet from the top, and that a return thither would not be very difficult. But if I had walked from the top a few feet farther back, I should have fallen a quarter of a mile. One of my snowshoes came off as I struggled out, so I took off the other shoe and used it as a scoop to uncover the lost web. But it proved very slow and dangerous work. With both shoes off, I sank chest deep in the snow. If I ventured too near the edge of the ledge, the snow would probably slip off and carry me to the bottom of the precipice. It was only after two hours of effort that the shoe was recovered. When I first struggled to the surface of the snow on the ledge, I looked at once to find a way back to the top of the precipice. I quickly saw that by following the ledge a few yards beneath the unbroken snow cornice, I could climb to the top over some jagged rocks. As soon as I had recovered the shoe, I started round the ledge. When I had almost reached the jagged rocks, the snow cornice caved upon me and not only buried me, but came perilously near, knocking me into the depths beneath. 
But at last, I stood upon the top in safety. A short walk from the top brought me out upon a high hill of snow that sloped steeply down into the woods. The snow was soft, and I sat down in it and slid a blue streak, my blue overalls recording the streak, for a quarter of a mile, and then came to a sudden and confusing stop. One of my webs had caught on a spine of one of the dwarfed and almost buried trees at Timberline. When I had traveled a short distance below Timberline, a fearful crashing caused me to turn. I was in time to see fragments of snow flying in all directions and snow dust boiling up in a great geyser column. A snowslide had swept down and struck a granite cliff. As I stood there, another slide started on the heights above timber and with a far-off roar swept down in awful magnificence with a comet-like tail of snow dust. Just at timberline, it struck a ledge and glanced to one side and at the same time shot up into the air so high that for an instant I saw the treetops beneath it. But it came back down to earth with awful force, and I felt the ground tremble as it crushed a wide way through the woods. It finally brought up at the bottom of a gulch with a wreckage of hundreds of noble spruce trees that it had crushed down and swept before it. As I left the trail on the heights, I was now far from it and in a rugged and wholly unfrequented section, so that coming upon the fresh tracks of a mountain lion did not surprise me. But I was not prepared for what occurred soon afterward. Noticing a steamy vapor rising from a hole in the snow by the protruding roots of an overturned tree, I walked to the hole to learn the cause of it. One whiff of the vapor stiffened my hair and limbered my legs. I shot down a steep slope, dodging trees and rocks, the vapor was rank with the odor from a bear. At the bottom of the slope, I found the frozen surface of a stream much easier walking than the soft snow. All went well, until I came to some rapids where, with no warning whatever, the thin ice dropped me into the cold current among the boulders. I scrambled to my feet with the ice flying like broken glass. The water came only a little above my knees, but as I had gone under the surface and was completely drenched, I made an enthusiastic move toward the bank. Now snowshoes are not adapted for walking either in swift water or among boulders. I realized this thoroughly after they had several times tripped me, sprawling into the liquid cold. Finally I sat down in the water, took them off, and came out gracefully. I gained the bank with chattering teeth and an icy armor. My pocket thermometer showed two degrees above zero. Another storm was bearing down upon me from the range, and the sun was sinking. But the worst of it all was that there were several miles of rough and strange country between me and Grand Lake that would have to be made in the dark. I did not care to take any more chances on the ice, so I spent a hard hour climbing out of the canyon. The climb warmed me and set my clothes steaming. My watch indicated six o'clock. A fine snow was falling, and it was dark and cold. I had been exercising for twelve hours without rest and had eaten nothing since the previous day, as I never take breakfast. I made a fire and lay down on a rock by it to relax, and also to dry my clothes. In half an hour I started on again. Rocky and forest-covered ridges lay between me and Grand Lake. In the darkness I certainly took the worst way. I met with too much resistance in the thickets and too little on the slippery places, so that when, at eleven o'clock that night, 
I entered a Grand Lake hotel. My appearance was not prepossessing. The next day, after a few snow measurements, I set off to recross the range. In order to avoid warm bear dens and cold streams, I took a different route. It was a much longer way than the one I had come by, so I went to a hunter's deserted cabin for the night. The cabin had no door, and I could see the stars through the roof. The old sheet iron stove was badly rusted and broken. Most of the night, I spent chopping wood, and I did not sleep at all. But I had a good rest by the stove, where I read a little from a musty pamphlet on palmistry that I found between the logs of the cabin. I always carried candles with me. When the wind is blowing, the wood damp, and the fingers numb, they are of inestimable value in kindling a fire. I do not carry firearms, and during the night, when a lion gave a blood-freezing screech, I wished he were somewhere else. Daylight found me climbing toward the top of the range through the Medicine Bow National Forest, among some of the noblest evergreens in Colorado. When the sun came over the range, the silent forest vistas became magnificent with bright lights and deep shadows. At Timberline, the bald rounded summit of the range, like a gigantic white turtle, rose a thousand feet above me. The slope was steep and very icy. A gusty wind whirled me about. Climbing to the top would be like going up a steep ice-covered house roof. It would be a dangerous and barely possible undertaking. But as I did not have courage enough to retreat, I threw off my snowshoes and started up. I cut a place in the ice for every step. There was nothing to hold on to, and a slip meant a fatal slide. With rushes from every quarter, the wind did its best to freeze or overturn me. My ears froze and my fingers grew so cold that they could hardly hold the ice axe. But after an hour of constant peril and ever-increasing exhaustion, I got above the last ice and stood upon the snow. The snow, as solidly packed, and, leaving the snowshoes strapped across my shoulders, I went scrambling up. Near the top of the range, a ledge of granite cropped out through the snow, and towards this I hurried. Before making a final spurt to the ledge, I paused to breathe. As I stopped, I was startled by sounds like the creaking of wheels on a cold, snowy street. The snow beneath me was slipping. I had started a snow slide. Almost instantly, the slide started down the slope, with me on it. The direction in which it was going and the speed it was making would, in a few seconds, carry it down 2,000 feet of slope, where it would leap over a precipice into the woods. I was on the very upper edge of the snow that had started, and this was the tail end of the slide. I tried to stand up in the rushing snow, but its speed knocked my feet from under me, and in an instant I was rolled beneath the surface. Beneath the snow, I went tumbling on with it for what seemed like a long time, but I know, of course, that it was for only a second or two. Then my feet struck against something solid. I was instantly flung to the surface again, where I either was spilled off or else fell through the end of the slide and came to a stop on the scraped and frozen ground out of the grasp of the terrible snow. I leaped to my feet and saw the slide sweep on in most impressive magnificence. At the front end of the slide, the snow piled higher and higher, while following in its wake were splendid streamers and scrolls of snow dust. 
I lost no time in getting to the top and set off southward, where after six miles I should come to the trail that led to my starting place on the east side of the range. After I had made about three miles, the cold clouds closed in, and everything was fogged. A chilly half-hour's wait, and the clouds broke up. I had lost my ten-foot staff in the snowslide, and feeling for precipices without it would probably bring me out upon another snow cornice, so I took no chances. I was 12,500 feet above sea level when the clouds broke up, and from this great height I looked down upon what seemed to be the margin of the polar world. It was intensely cold, but the sun shone with dazzling glare, and the wilderness of snowy peaks came out like a grand and jagged ice field in the far south. Halos and peculiarly luminous balls floated through the color-tinged and electrical air. The horizon had a touch of cobalt blue, and on the dome above, white flushes appeared and disappeared like faint auroras. After five hours on these silent but imposing heights, I struck my first day's trail and began a wild and merry coast down among the rocks and trees to my starting place. I hope to have more winter excursions, but perhaps I have had my share. At the bare thought of those winter experiences, I am again on an unsheltered peak struggling in a storm, or I am in a calm and splendid forest upon whose snowy, peaceful aisles fall the purple shadows of crags and pines. ironic getting sweaty palms in the middle of the snow but that was quite an adventure Venus Mount shared there thanks for choosing to spend another Walden Wednesday with us reflecting on nature's magnificence and goodness and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did as always be sure to get outside today and remember life is a gift nature's a gift and you are a gift back to the world have a blessed day my friend and we'll see you again here soon